Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Start in the book of Daniel because I said I would start in Revelation, but we can't get to Revelation until we go through Daniel. And uh, as a preface to this tonight, um, these lessons may not go in succession just because they are very labor-intensive on my part. And so they're going to be very labor-intensive in listening on your part. (laughs) But they're very labor-intensive. And so I don't know how long this will take. I would love to have uh, half a year to just to go through study. I'll put it together and then present it. But that isn't the way that it normally goes with any series that comes from this pulpit. It's work as we go along. And so that is the case. And I've already done a bunch of reading and studying over the past month because I haven't done no series. And so Andrew's first, I've spent nights at home even reading into the wee hours. So I ask for your prayers. Let me tell you this. I will not, ask every, I will not answer every question that you have. I'm not talking about hands that are being raised. I'm saying whenever this is said and done, you're still going to have questions. When we get through Daniel Revelation, you're still going to have questions. Some of the sharpest minds of Pentecost still have questions. So you all going to have questions. There's still going to be questions. There'll be some things that are unanswered. There'll be some things that'll be absolutely definite. Why? Because the scripture tells us exactly what it is. You want to know what the four beasts are in the book of Daniel? He says these are kings. Well, there you go. That's pretty definite. All right? But there'll be other things that will be absolutely unanswered. And uh, in going through this also, there'll be uh, times that I'll give you just a few different viewpoints because we're talking about some of these things that are still yet in the future. So I'll give you a few different viewpoints. I might be leaning toward one or the other, but I'm just going to just give it a few different viewpoints uh, for the sake of it all. Amen. So we're just going to have to get in, okay, and, and get our feet wet. Some of you, this being a midweek, and this is Daniel and Revelation, uh, you may nod off. I don't know. Yeah, I know, though, uh, whenever we took the survey however long ago, that a good group of people was interested in this. And so this is at the will of the people. <laughs> Amen. That we are where we are. Amen. Here this evening in, in the word of the Lord. Now, now, is it really necessary, Pastor McGee? Well, Daniel and Revelation are part of the Holy Book. And all Scripture is given for a purpose. And so we'll get into that a little bit this evening. Amen. But Daniel, I'm going to start with the first two verses for tonight. I hope that's no indication, but it's, it's a start. Amen. Daniel chapter number one, starting with verse number one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. He brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. I don't know how fancy we'll have titles throughout this thing, all right? Because tonight's basically introduction in history. And that's as good as it's going to get. And we, we got to go there in order, though, to have... Uh, we can't go forward until we go backward. And so if you don't like history, I'm sorry. That's what the syllabus right now requires. <laughs> All right? It requires a little bit of history. Amen. But we'll go into the Lord. And I believe that God can touch us through this. I believe in sharing His Word and reading His Word, God can touch us. I might not be blowing white spit from the corners of my mouth, But I believe God can touch our hearts and our minds. Amen. By the word of the Lord. Will you help me pray right now? Father, I come to you. God, I'm thankful, Lord, for you people that have gathered here tonight. I pray, oh, Lord Jesus, let there be a spirit of revelation that would land upon our hearts and our minds, God, for the several, several weeks to come. I pray, oh, Lord, give us enlightenment. Lord, let your word be alive to us. I pray, oh God, today, know, Lord, how it pertains to us, God, in the hour then and in the hour now. 
God, we'll praise you and we'll thank you, God, for what you do and you accomplish. Amen. Through this, the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen and amen. Everybody say amen. Amen. You may be seated. You might say, well, I didn't sign up for Daniel. I signed up for Revelation. Well, you signed up for Daniel and you signed up for Revelation. Again, like over it's been now probably over a year ago that I put out that little form. Some of you that were here, if you a character or a Bible, uh, a book of the Bible or perhaps a topic that you'd be inter- interested in learning about. And uh, by and large, whenever I compiled that, the greatest interest of anything was the book of Revelation, by and large. Uh, probably because to uh, many, even include myself, I do not, I do not call my, I'm not a scholar of last things, eschatology or uh, Daniel or the book of Revelation, but by the people's desire, I'm going to be, <laughs> whatever it's all said and done, by the people's desire, we're going to be, amen. So this isn't necessarily my forte, amen, but it is the word of God, and so I love God's word, amen, regardless of what it may be. And so what we're going to be looking at for several weeks, and I cannot give you the number, I wouldn't even want to attempt uh, to forecast what that number is, but we're going to be studying uh, some, some two, two major books of prophecy. Prophecy, the study of last things, and I did refer to that. Uh, people call that eschatology, the study of last things. If ever Some people are just more formal than others. Well, what's your theology of eschatology and all of this stuff? Well, they're just talking about last things. They're talking about the prophetic books. And we oftentimes steer our attention uh, to the book of Revelation. Many people do. But uh, what Revelation is to the New Testament, Daniel is to the Old Testament. And so, and there is a lot, there is a lot of overlap and there is light that is shed upon the book of Revelation from the book of Daniel and vice versa. There can be light shed upon the book of Daniel from the book of Revelation. And uh, many people over the years, and I would account myself in that circle, people teaching or uh, preaching about prophecy because... It deals with those items that are still yet to come. It's a, it's, a, it's a greater comfort being able to talk about something that's already happened. I mean, you know, what is there to prove? There, there is no what ifs, you know, type of scenarios. It's easier to go back and talk about things that have already happened because we can point to it and say, there it is. Uh, but that is not the case necessarily uh, with prophecy. Amen. But prophecy does, and uh, just allow me a little time to work into this, maybe allow me a lot of time for that matter. But prophecy should help us if with, you know, we talk about the idea even society talk about people's worldviews. Prophecy uh, for the church should help with the church's worldviews. That is uh, the view of the world that we're presently living in right now Amen. The, the, the world that we live in right now, but also the arena of the world that's after this life. Two worldviews, really, it should help concentrate us on where we are now and where we'll be after this life. Amen. And with those two worldviews of the present and of that which is to come, it should, to a certain degree, help us and influence us how we conduct ourselves now. How we conduct ourselves now. Uh, you've heard the statements. I've even said the statements before. I've been guilty of it. Uh, Bishop, over times past, uh, people ask or inquire about Revelation or a prophetic book and uh, our common response. I've heard it said before. Uh, don't worry about that. Just worry about being saved. And that's true. We do need to worry about being saved. But uh, through study, I understand also that prophecy and the prophetic books help explain why we should desire salvation. So yes, okay, you need to be saved, yes, but whenever we start looking at prophecy, uh, it gives credence to the purpose of being saved, especially when one, by the Bible, can start seeing some events that were recorded in the Bible begin to unfold. And that gives credence then back to Scripture, that if some of the things that were spoken of Scripture have already been, came about, and there's some things presently happen right now, that are foretold in the Bible, then whenever we see that and we say, hey, that was right about foretelling the birth of Christ. Or that is right about what's happening thus and so right now in my life. It gives credence to the word of God in so much that if it was right about these historical things and right about some of the things presently taking place in my life, it is more than likely probably right about how to be saved. 
about my means of salvation. And so, really, prophecy gives credence to our salvation. We say, well, just, just worry about being saved. Well, so, you know, we're living in a different world. Knowledge has increased. Knowledge has increased. Years ago, just tell somebody that's what you need to do. Man, they swallowed the whole thing. They accepted that. They followed instruction just from a, just from a man of God. You didn't even have to give chapter and verse. They had so much trust and reverence for the man of God. Man, what he's saying is true. Follow it. Sign, sealed, delivered. Not today. Not today. We live in a different world, and I think perhaps why some people of today's society steer so much so along the prophetic line is because they're looking for that validation that if this will come about and this will seal the deal that this is true, then I'll accept its message of salvation. And so I've had a little idea change myself in the process of study because I was one of those just worry about being saved. Yes, but we're doing the world today. Tell me why I need to be. Going further than just that washes my sins away. How much credence is there in their book? That's what they're really looking for. How much, how much, how much can we really trust that? Well, there are several, several prophecies uh, that have already come about, amen, throughout Scripture. And so that does nothing more but underline that it was right for that. So it's also right for telling us how to be saved. In second, in, 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 let me just back up just a moment. Concerning this idea of prophecy too, and uh, we're going to try to get uh, a proper balance throughout this. Because it's very easy sometimes to take some of the prophecies of scripture and just go all spiritualized on everything everything is just a symbol and everything is just stands for this stands for this and that stands for that and that and we got stuff standing for standing for standing stuff that's standing somewhere else you know what I'm saying that's what that means and we're spiritualizing everything everything's an allegory it's just it's a it's, it's figurative everything's figurative and here is a, a proper rule uh, for interpretation of scripture by and large is to try to let scripture interpret scripture Try to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Because many times Scripture will do just that. Uh, it will interpret Scripture. But there's something I think is important that whenever we speak about the first coming of Jesus Christ, amen, as that babe in Bethlehem, and whenever we read concerning the prophecies of that, which I think there were about over 100 prophecies concerning uh, the, the first coming of Jesus Christ, Whenever you read back and it speaks about the piercing and, and you read about these other things, I imagine in that day they were probably thinking, man, that's, that's pretty brutal or that's just kind of wow factor. But those most, most, if not all, of those prophecies concerning Jesus Christ's first coming were literal prophecies that literally took place just as they were spoken. And so we got to weigh that in our minds in when we consider the prophecies of his second coming that where they're literally spoken and it's not just some, uh, you know, beast with ten heads and, you know, something like that that's outside of nature. Whenever it's literally spoken, we need to take it literally because it was the literal prophecies that gave birth to this first coming and so likewise with the second coming. Now, that does not subtract away that the Bible does have symbolism in it, that the Bible does have types and shadows in it. We get a lot of that between the Old Testament and the New Testament, types and shadows, but we're going to try to the best of our ability to allow Scripture to interpret that type and Scripture to interpret that shadow. Second Peter chapter number 1. Everybody all right with that? We're going to try to stay as true as possible, all right, without interjecting our, our, our own philosophy. Second Peter chapter number 1 and verse 20, the Bible says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Back that up just one more time, if you will. No prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now here, a lot of times we've said, well, you know, people have different ideas and stuff, and so they have a private interpretation. But in essence, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation is no prophecy is to be interpreted by itself. No prophecy is to be interpreted by itself, privately, alone, by itself, but in harmony with all the rest of the scriptures that may 
re, re, uh, be, be referring to the exact same prophecy. So we just don't take a prophecy and look at it by itself, but any other scriptures that may refer to that exact same prophecy. We take all those and we group them together. And it's through the conglomerate picture of the different scriptures from different places that we look at these all together and birthed out of that comes a proper interpretation then of the prophecy, proper interpretation of the scripture. So with that being said, we're looking at Daniel for revelation because there's some overlap. They speak about a lot of the same things. So I can't just look at revelation by itself or otherwise I'm interpreting it privately. So I got to bring in Daniel. This is the reason why we're starting here tonight. We're bringing in Daniel because it's going to open up our understanding. We're going to have a more proper understanding, if you will, of the book of Revelation. Amen. And so Revelation, we see the book of Revelation. Uh, it's considered by and large very prophetic in its scope. Amen. There are other books and other passages uh, that make some similar contributions that we'll probably hit on along the way because, again, we don't want to interpret privately. Uh, Ezekiel has a lot to say about last things. Even the book of Thessalonians has much to say about last things. Matthew chapter 24 in particular has a lot to say about last things. Zechariah, man, you want to talk about visions and dreams, just spilling chapter after chapter that pertain to last things. Amen. And as I've already mentioned, Daniel. As a matter of fact, you know, we, we speak, the Word of God is such a powerful thing because any time a preacher or someone ministers from the Word of God, he is being prophetic. Because by and large, as they've deduced and crunched the numbers and divided it, they say that somewhere around one-fourth of the books of the Bible are prophetic in nature. So I didn't know it, but I just entered the role of the prophet as soon as I started talking tonight. Because, sincerely, one-fourth of the Scripture is prophetic. Now, when we look, when we consider the book of Revelation, and I, I'm just setting a little foreground here with these two books. Amen. The purpose of the book of Revelation is revealed in the first verse of the first chapter. Because it's primarily, the scripture says, John says, and I don't have it up them for, the, for them tonight, but I'll just read it very quickly, Revelation 1. He speaks of the purpose, primarily of what the purpose of the book of Revelation is. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's primary it, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Along with secondarily is this, which gave God unto him to shew unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Amen. So primarily the purpose of the book of Revelation is to be a revelation or an unveiling of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, amen, secondarily, shewing the things which must shortly come to pass. Now, a lot of people want to lasso around the secondary part to see the things that are to come to pass, but you've missed it all if you missed the revelation of Jesus Christ throughout the book of Revelation because primarily, that's primary, and the, the last things are secondary, amen, is what is spoken of in the Bible. Amen. Revelations 1.19 speaks these words. It says, write the things which thou hast seen. This is the angel speaking to John. Write the things which thou hast seen. Someone say past. And the things which are. Someone say present. And the things which shall be hereafter. Someone say future. So John has the responsibility. Revelation isn't all about last things. John, in the, writing the book of Revelation, he's writing of things that have already occurred, things that are occurring in the time frame in which he wrote them, and things that were, yes, still yet to come, amen, after his writing. Amen. Again, when we go back then to Daniel, Daniel is uh, primarily very prophetic, but not entirely prophetic. Amen. A lot of people, old, old time thinking, divided the book of Daniel into two divisions, chapters 1 through 6, mainly historical. But through this study with another venue and eye point, we're going to understand that it, like chapter 7 and 8 may also could have been prophetic that something's still yet to take place. And, and there's nothing wrong with that because there's many times that prophecy has had a dualism, something that was just for the next present and then for the further time. For instance, 
Joel, in his book, spoke that in the last days he'll pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Amen. The old men dreaming dreams. Uh, the young men seeing visions, the handmaidens, all that taking place, how there was going to be a darkness that was going to take place, the blood that was going to happen, that's all in that same prophecy. We come to the day of Pentecost, there's the outpouring of the Spirit, amen? Peter stands up and says, this is that, which was spoken by the prophet Joe. But there was nothing turning to blood and no darkness that was happening right then. It was a prophecy that was for Pentecost, but still yet a prophecy for the end of our last day. So here is one prophecy that has a dualism that's for a time in the future, but yet still further in the future. And so uh, put your seatbelts on because we'll speak about Daniel 7 and 8 historically, and it lines up very well historically. But we'll look also how it could still yet be futuristic for some nations that are in position right now even as we speak all right everyone say all right all right right. amen so whenever we look another i like what this one gentleman said irving jensen he noted he said the first division of daniel he's interpreting others dreams nebuchadnezzar is having different dreams and daniel's interpreting them and then the second half of daniel daniel's having these visions daniel's having these dreams and an angel of the lord are interpreting them for Daniel and it's quite peculiar Daniel in the scripture in the book of Daniel at least three or so times is called the greatly beloved in his book and this is just a little comparison that's neat in the book of Revelation the disciple John was denoted in the book of John oft times and I know that he wrote it but still yet called himself John the what beloved and so here's each of these men One's called greatly beloved, the other one, John, if you will, the beloved of the Lord. And they both have visions, dreams, encompassing a timetable all the way back from history around the new Babylonian time all the way up to the coming, second coming and rapture even of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were both beloved in their own respects. Amen. And so it's important to have knowledge of them both. Amen. The book of Daniel. Now, Allow me a little time here. We always do this. We talk about the author. We talk about sometimes the attacks that come against books of the Bible and how they try to discredit them and all this stuff. Uh, There's been a lot of attacks against the book of Daniel. Uh, There's been a lot of attacks against the Bible in general. As a matter of fact, you know, it, it probably isn't always true, but I'd say for the most part it's true that if somebody is attacking a portion of the Bible, it probably stems from somebody who really has a disbelief in God altogether. You know, because a good way to attack the God, God is to attack his book. <laughs> you know, you want to attack the author, talk, attack what he's written, attack what he said. So a lot of times when they're trying to disprove something, they're, they're trying to war with their disbelief or, you know, maybe that edginess of maybe I do, maybe I don't, uh, uh, with, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I go on note just for one little side note here? One reason, personally, I believe atheists fight that they so concretely have to say there isn't a God. Now, how do you, why do you have to defend that there isn't a God if you don't believe in a God? You understand what I'm saying? Why are you defending something so, so you know, sternly if you don't believe it is? It would be no big deal, would it? No big deal. Amen. And so... Glad we don't have our number on those podcasts. We probably get them now. Hallelujah. <laughs> Search us down, hunt us up, and gut us or something. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. But 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 so so they probably have a disbelief in God altogether. Amen. And so some have tried to totally discredit the book of Daniel. It's total validity. They've totally tried to discredit it, saying that it's not even a part of the Holy Scriptures at all. No portion or part of it. Amen. But and this, there are a lot of different reasons we could give. And listen, it would be easy in the next however many years to be bogged down in this. <laughs> and so I'm trying not to get too bogged down in detail because you could. All right, you could very easily. You might not ever hear me talk about anything else in my pastorate, you know, if we get bogged down. But there's one thing that stems, I think, that gives the greatest validation for Daniel is that Jesus in the New Testament referred to Daniel 
him and his prophecies in his Olivet Discourse. The Bible says in Matthew 24 and verse 15, and when ye therefore shall see the abomination, Jesus speaking of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. In my opinion, they are, there's a lot of different things and avenues you could come to validate, but there is no greater validation if you believe in Christ and you believe there's a God. There's no greater validation in that Jesus himself referred back to the prophet Daniel and spoke of the very things that Daniel spoke of in his book. I don't need anything else. I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. Lord, if you can validate him, I'm good with that. For that matter, we have studied uh, some epistles in times past, all right, letters that have been written, and it was the... It was the format of, of those letters that were written that oftentimes the author would note who they were in some of those first few verses or in the first chapter uh, of the opening verses of their book. Uh, for instance, in, in Colossians 4.18, and it won't be up there, uh, Paul, again, the author, but he says the salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Well, it doesn't get much more plain than that, you know. He says also in Philemon 1.19, he says, I have written it with mine own hand. Well... You know, you either believe the man he's saying what he's saying or he's a liar, you know. You think he's a liar. And so whenever we look at the book of Daniel, we ask ourselves, well, who wrote Daniel? In Daniel 8, 15, the Bible says, and this is a little deeper perhaps in the book, but listen to what he says. And he says, it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision. He's speaking about everything he'd already seen. And he refers to himself, even I, Daniel had seen the vision and sought for the meaning. Then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. Now, I, Daniel, is one of the most direct admissions that you can make. I, Paul, am standing before you trying to teach the book of Daniel tonight. I mean, you know, I wonder if that's George up there. I wonder if that's Clyde. Well, I can't make any more direct admission to you than I, Paul, am standing before you trying to teach this lesson on the book of Daniel this evening. So Daniel, by his own admission, said, I am, I'm the author of all this has taken place. These visions that I've already shared, I, I'm trying to understand them. Even, even I, Daniel, am trying to grant understanding for all of these things. Now, the book of Daniel is, is we get a lot, of, a lot of prophetic history. I just call it, you say prophetic in history, that's kind of almost like an oxymoron. Well, standing where we stand, it's history, but whenever it was spoken, it was prophetic. So a lot of prophetic history for the Gentile nations. There's a lot of concentration that's concerning the Gentile nations that's in the book of Daniel. As a matter of fact, the book of Daniel was written in a couple different languages. It was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. And you'll come to find out, and this is just for your reference, Unless you know Hebrew and Aramaic, it isn't really going to mean, or you ain't going to care much. But it's from about chapter 1 through verse 4 of chapter 2, it's written in Hebrew. And then from that chapter 2 of verse 4 through chapter 7 of verse 28, it's written in Aramaic. And then it switches back for the rest of the chapter to Hebrew. But the reason being is because in the book of Daniel, we're really dealing with a few different classifications and classes of people. In the book of Daniel, we're dealing with the Jews there's things written in the book of Daniel that pertains to the Jews and the Jewish people. There's things within the book of Daniel that are written that pertain to the Gentiles. They got a lot of history in the book of Daniel. But there is also, just in all of that, some things that pertain to the church. See, the church is a Jew and a Gentile mixed body. And so this is not, this is, you, you can't draw a line and say this is absolutely standard, but you can see a lot of it does apply whenever it is written in the Aramaic tongue of chapters 2, you know, somewhat through chapter 7, you can see that a lot, a lot is being written would probably concern the Gentile nation. What concerned them? Written in their language and tongue. And whenever the other verses that are in Hebrew, that were written in Hebrew, was those which pertain largely to the Jewish nation and what concerned them. And of course, there's spatterings of the church, amen, throughout there. But it, again, it denotes something very important for validation for Daniel, amen. Daniel was a Jew, but he went into Babylonian exile all 70 years. 70 years, he was there the whole exile. 
and he knew their language, which was the Aramaic language. And so here is a man that could write in either and convey both a, a, a Jewish language of the Hebrews and the Aramaic of the Gentiles. Amen. And just for a side note of further evidence, the Hebrew that he wrote in is the same style that Ezekiel wrote in, who Ezekiel also was exiled to Babylon. Again, giving validity to the book of Daniel. Amen. Everybody say amen. But again, the church is a part of this address as well. Uh, three classes of people, if I may, uh, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 32. Uh, I know we have different classes. In, you know, we have, a, what is it, a low, middle, and whatever, upper class. But these are the three classes, really, of humanity. They're the Jew, the Gentile, and the church of God. All right? And those are the things. It's important, and, and I'm learning this more as, as I grow older. It's important to note in Scripture whenever Jesus or God or whenever the great God of heaven is addressing the Jews as really a Jewish nation. And when he's addressing the Gentiles as the Gentiles and when he's addressing the church as the church. Amen. Because there will be some things that will ultimately, amen, apply to the Jew that may not apply to the church. All right? Amen. So as I grow older, I understand that, that that's important. Now, let, let, let's uh, do a little history lesson. 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean. No. History lesson leading up to Daniel. And I wish, I'm telling you what, I might have to purchase a big uh, whiteboard or something. I, I thought about using one tonight but, or, or something. I'd really like to do PowerPoint, but you know what? These things are so labor-intensive. After I, get done, I don't have no time to make a PowerPoint. All right, so uh, just close your eyes and just believe that it's there. Let's go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Now, I'm not going to, I'm going to try to hit the tops of the trees, folks, okay? Because there's a lot of history uh, between Genesis and the book of Daniel. But some of these things are important to denote because they're going to become more meaningful as we dig in a little deeper, all right, into this study. All the way back at Genesis 6 through 8. What happened in Genesis 6 through 8? We had the flood. The flood that took place, amen, destroyed all of humanity by flood because of sin that was in the hearts of humanity. And it wasn't going to take care of business, but there was the flood. But here's Noah now. He and his family comes off the ark. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 9, verse number 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons, which was Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish, which the word literally means fill, replenish or fill the earth, all right? That was the command that God gave to the family after they stepped off the boat. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah, y'all be fruitful, multiply, replenish, or if you will, fill the earth. Now, I got some lengthy readings tonight. Uh, oh, if, you, if you bring your Bible on Wednesday nights. It'll be on the screen but sometimes, you know, you ever start reading something, you want to just back up and just look at another verse that was before that they just read. I, I'm so confident of it. I want to read it out of my Bible. I don't have nothing against the screen, but I want to read it out of my Bible. At, at Genesis chapter number 11 and verse number 1. Because what we're seeing here is the birth, the birth of a nation. That at all times wouldn't always be a nation, but it would the spirit of that nation would always exist even to the, the book of Revelation. So this is important. This is important for what we're going to do for the next several weeks. In Genesis chapter number 1, the Bible says, and this is after the command given to Noah and his sons to be fruitful, multiply, replenish. I want you to kind of underline in your mind, replenish, fill the earth. The Bible says that the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, speaking of the families, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Their journey didn't go very far to the land of Shinar and then they dwelt there. Whenever the plea of God was to fill the earth, they paused and dwelt, took up residence. At Shinar, in other words, Bishop, they didn't fully obey. They, they were fruitful, they multiplied, but they didn't carry out the total filling, the earth, because they stopped here at Shinar and dwelt. And they said, look what happened. Can we, can we just use some common sense tonight? 
Look what type of trouble humanity gets in when it doesn't fully follow what God says. Look what starts to unfold. The Bible says, And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. Man, there is just so much material in all this stuff because they were at their own will wanting to make brick and mortar to do something that was opposing God and God would later have them as a nation of Israel in captivity to the Egyptians making brick against their will there is so much stuff in God's word and that's just a side note okay for me because I really I can't even talk amen anything about that except that all right and slime they had from order and they said go to let us build us a city and a tower whose tomb may reach into heaven and let us make us a name what are we doing this for here what's our motive here you know let us do this for make us a name lest we be scattered abroad but that is in total contradiction to what the Lord wanted. He wanted them to be scattered abroad and to fill the earth. But they're saying, let's stop right here. Let's build a city and a tower. Let's make ourselves a name so that we won't be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, behold, the people is one. And they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will, nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. In other words, he says, whenever people get a mind together of unity, nothing will stop them, whether it be for evil or for good. And so the power here that's directed towards something negative and evil, again, Pentecost, we see the vice versa of that when they were in one accord in one place for a positive manner. They were one language and got them mixed up here, but at Pentecost they were diverse and came under one language of tongues. Amen. But that's not where we're going. Go to, let us go down there and confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord, he's, he's got to get involved because they're not being obedient. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. In other words, they stopped it. They stopped building the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel. Everyone say Babel. Babel is Babylon. All right? Babel is Babylon. All throughout the scripture. Because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. So instead of them filling all the earth, they traveled from the east to the land of Shinar. Underline Shinar, because you'll note that in Daniel 1 and 2 that we read in your hearing tonight, that Nebuchadnezzar, when he went and overtook Jehoiakim and brought the vessels from there, he took them to where his treasury house was for his gods. It's in the land of Shinar. Amen. Amen. So... He has this and he dwelt there. And note, again, those opening verses, again, referring to Shinar because we're talking about uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king over what was called the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Neo just means new. This, this, this here that we're speaking of right now was the old empire. Amen. But under Nebuchadnezzar's reign, amen, was the Neo of the new Babylonian Empire. Amen. And notice, though, notice, though, this is what man devised from the beginning. We have one language. We have one tongue. We're going to build a city. This is all great. And ever since then, folks, the leaders of the world and the leaders of nations even presently and in times past have tried to get the world back to where man wanted it to be from the beginning, trying to get one nation back, one world back, one government back, one religion back, one health care system. You, you do realize that there is an international health care system? Trying to get one health care system back, one tongue of society back. Where's this all come from? Back to when men tried to build it on their own and they had all this per se oneness and they're trying to get it back to that. But what? That was never the will of God. 
It wasn't the will of God then, and it's not the will of God now. God just doesn't, you know, put forth and retract his will, <laughs> you know. Well, usually whenever he states something in Scripture, it is that way for the eternity of life. Amen. Forever. That's another way to say it. <laughs> you know, makes it get my tongue around my eye tooth, and it's just having a hard time here. Babel is Babylon. Now, consider now. Let's go a little further. Genesis chapter 10. I'm backing up just a little. Genesis chapter 10 and verse number 8. What we're seeing here is some of the descendants of Noah's sons, of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Amen. And what I'm about ready to read to you is a descendant of Ham. The Bible says, And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it was said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his, Nimrod's kingdom, was Babel. Babylon. And then it states a few others. Look, in the land of Shinar. The first kingdom mentioned of in Scripture that was on the earth is right here in Genesis chapter 10. The first time you see the word kingdom ever used in the Scriptures is right here in Genesis chapter number 10. This is the first kingdom, first time it was ever mentioned in Scripture, and it was the kingdom of Nimrod. It was the kingdom that was established after the flood. Now note, in verse number 10, he says the beginning of his or Nimrod's kingdom was Babel, Babylon, in the land of Shinar. Now, a kingdom is a one-man rule. You got a kingdom, you got a king. A kingdom is a one-man rule. And this kingdom was ruled by Nimrod, who is represented and repeatedly called mighty. Amen? He was the son of Cush, which was the son of Ham, who was the one who looked on his father's nakedness when he was in the tent, was really frowned upon. Amen. The name Nimrod means rebel. To be rebellious, to rebel, indicating that this first earthly kingdom has a king that is in rebellion or rebellious or in total opposition to the true king as a real nation that is so but the spirit of that nation has been through all eternity and we'll find even the book of revelation it is a kingdom that is rebellious with deep-rooted rebellion that's against everything that is true godly right and proper it still exists still yet today. In Genesis chapter number 11, just again, and I, we got to get through our history. i got to go here. My goodness. Genesis 11, the Bible begins to talk to us about the descendants of Shem, uh, another son of Noah. And Shem can trace his, his family line all the way through up to Abraham, where Abraham was called out of his pagan family. Terah, his daddy, they served pagan gods, false gods. But remember, God called Abraham out of that. God called Abraham out of that. And so with that being the case, Shem then really is the ancestor of the Hebrews through Abraham because Abraham was called out. And he, Abraham had a covenant that was made with him by God. You remember that. He called him out. Genesis 12. Let's just go to Scripture reference. And I got Scripture. I'm back in the saddle. Let's go. Genesis 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country. Why? Because it's filled with paganism. False gods, I'm calling you out of the country from thy kindred, from thy father's house unto a land that I will shew thee and I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing and I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. Notice this last phrase. And in thee shall all, everybody say all, all families of the earth be blessed. God made a covenant with Abraham and he said, Abraham, in you shall all the families of the earth, all the families be blessed. Not just the Hebrews, but in thee, everybody will. Why so? Because somewhere along the line of Abraham, we'll get to, let, let, me, let me just, I don't want to get ahead. Galatians 3.8. The Bible says, and the scripture, foreseeing, that's, it was prophetic. Foreseeing that 
God would justify the heathen, which was the Gentiles. They're the low-down scoundrel heathens, Gentiles. The heathen. Through faith, the Scripture prophetically saw the Gentiles through faith, already seen them, preached before the gospel unto Abraham. In other words, before there was a gospel, this was proclaimed and preached to Abraham. Before there was ever a gospel, God already foreseeing a heathen nation called the Gentiles was already preaching to Abraham, who at the point when he called him out was a heathen. Preached and proclaimed to Abraham saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Now why is that so? Well, let's just do the little family tree in a Reader's Digest condensed version, if you will. Abraham has uh, not having any children with Sarah. He takes the handmaiden, Hagar, which is an Egyptian. Out of their union comes Ishmael. Amen. Abraham and Sarah have a child. Out of their union comes what? Isaac. Isaac has himself a wife by the name of Rebekah. Out of their union come what? Esau and Jacob. Twins. Jacob who's later renamed Israel. Amen. Jacob has a couple wives, Rachel and Leah. Out of the conglomeration of their families come what? Twelve tribes of Israel. All right? One of the boys of those twelve tribes by the name of Joseph is taken down into Egypt. He's in, eventually the nation is in bondage there after their years of bondage there's the exodus they come up out of Egypt they have their years of wandering in the wilderness and then Moses dies off Joshua steps into his stead he conquers Canaan there's the dispersing of the land among the tribes and then at the conclusion of the book of Joshua there is not another person anointed to take Joshua's place Hands were placed on Joshua to take Moses' place. The anointing, everything was spoken. There was a formal gathering among the people that this is the one. That never happened after. There was not another person to step into the row. No one was ever groomed for that place after Joshua. Matter of fact, at the end of Joshua, it's a really cry-cry story because we're, we have three funerals at the end of Joshua. Joshua's dead. They're burying him. Joseph, whose bones had been all along on this wilderness journey because he said, don't bury me in Egypt, bury me in Canaan. They've been carrying his bones all along, so now they're going to bury him. And Eleazar, also dead. And they're putting all these three guys in the ground. Well, you know what that spawned? What happened, I, I just said it the other week, you know, there arose a group of people then. The elders outlived Joshua. There arose a group of people that knew not the Lord, neither knew his works. They didn't have a Moses. They didn't have a Joshua. They didn't have a leader. You're going to have to track with me. This, all, every piece, this is a time when you don't want no missing pieces at the end whenever the puzzle gets complete, all right? And I'm not talking about just now. I'm talking about whenever we're finished with this. Then we go to the book of Judges. Hundreds of years of Judges. Delivers, rising and falling. The last judge being Samuel. Mm -hmm. Samuel anoints the first king by the name of Saul. Saul serves approximately 40 years. Saul... Really don't has no heart, it seems like. Then comes in David. He serves approximately 40 years. He's, he's all a heart. He's a man that's after God's own heart. And then after him comes his son Solomon, who serves again about 40 years. He's kind of half heart. <laughs> Amen. And so after all this takes place, Solomon did a no-no. He took to himself foreign wives. He did somewhat, well, he just did what he was taught. His dad had really done the same. But he had taken some foreign wives. And as a result of that, that brought in what? False gods. Did not your father Abraham get called out of a similar circumstance and you're trying to get back into it? All the way back? And so because the scripture says explicitly, and, and, and again, if I may interject, just forgive me for times I stop, rewind and hit and go, all right? Just, but again, why is it so important? Concerning that Abraham in thee shall all the nations be blessed. Because through that lineage when we get to the tribes from Leah came Judah. Out of Judah, if you would try then trace his, his generations forward, will come Jesus Christ. That came birthed out of the family somewhere along the way of Abraham forward. So Abraham, we're speaking prophetically into your life. 
in thee, in your loins, seed from your loins that will impact a generation, then the next generation, the next generation is ultimately going to come someone that will be a blessing to every nation if they will allow it to be. Amen? And so, my time's up, but it's not up because I'm not quitting until I'm finished right here, okay? So he left Solomon with his foreign wives and false gods. As a result of that, God judged the nation of Israel. It's at that point in time there's a splitting of the nation of Israel into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom that consists of ten tribes. Their capital was in Samaria. Their king, firstly, was Jeroboam. And there was the southern tribe that consisted of two. Amen. Judah and Benjamin. Amen. That was capital city was Jerusalem and that they were under the rule of Rehoboam now there is a whole bunch of history and I'm not going through it all take a sigh there's a whole bunch of history over here in the northern tribe all the different kings that they had so and so forth but ultimately what happened to the northern tribe is that they were taken by the Assyrian Empire eventually around somewhere around 730 something B.C. They were taken by the Assyrian Empire. But then over here in the southern tribe, there's still a lot of history of kings that take us up to the one that is made mention of in Daniel, of Jehoiakim, who was formerly called Eliakim, but Jehoiakim being somewhere around the 18th king. And it was he that was taken, amen, in, and right here that we land in the book of Daniel. Amen. If you want to read more about those first two verses, I'm just saying the first two verses of the book of Daniel. Need some background information? Here's just some homework. Read 2 Kings 24. It speaks right of that time frame. Or 2 Chronicles 36. It speaks right of that time frame. And actually the taking away of Judah and that kingdom over into Babylon, there were actually three different waves that came to actually get all the people taken away. The first group of people are described right there in Daniel. It was whenever they went and took some of the vessels and Daniel and his comrades. We oftentimes call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is really knowing them by their Babylonian name, which could be a sermon within itself that they're most remembered by their Babylonian name than they are their Hebrew Jewish name. You've got to be careful whenever you get your name changed because people have a tendency to remember about who you became rather than who you were. Anyway, um, so, so that happened. Then there was a second group that came about. Ezekiel's going to captivity for about 10,000 uh, people that are skilled workers, some really good craftsmen and silversmiths and such that were taken away. And then they went back one final time and did a total direct, uh, destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And there was a complete totality of captivity. Now, I, I, I'm running, and I, I, I know, Sister McGee, I still got a lot of scripture up there for one little thing, but I'm going to do it. All right. Second Chronicles 36. If along the process, anybody has any problem with some of this, ask somebody who said they wanted to learn about Revelation and talk to them about it. Don't come talk to me about it. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 36 tonight. I want to read just a few verses of Scripture here again because this kind of sets the stage why, why is there this 70 years of captivity? Why is there this 70 years of captivity? God just being cruel and just thought, you know what, 70 sounds like a good number. I think I'll go for that. Yeah. 2 Chronicles 36, verse 14, the Bible says, Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people, not his dwelling place. So in other words, the people had steered clear from God. They started doing as the heathen nations did, and God sent preachers. God sent messengers trying to talk to them. Amen. Because he had compassion on his people. And a lot of times he uses the preacher to help steer them back, you know, with words of guidance and direction. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, till there was no remedy. In other words, I've sent you a voice to try to steer you right, but you're mocking them. You're acting like what you got to say don't matter. He says, there's nothing more I can do. 
There's nothing more I could say. Therefore, he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees. And Chaldee is actually a place within Babylon. All right, within that region of Babylon, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, had no compassion upon the young men or maiden, old man or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king and of his princes. All these he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God and break down. So it's given us a, a synopsis of all this captivity that took place, the destruction, the mayhem to Jerusalem and Judah. From Babylon, they break down the wall of Jerusalem, burn all the palaces thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia, which we'll see later in this study, to fulfill the word of the Lord, to fulfill, or I say fulfill, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. Everybody say the land enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill three score, a score is 20 years, three score and 10 years. That's 70 years. Judah was judged primarily for three reasons. Because she continued in her idolatry and she wouldn't stop. Number two, she wouldn't adhere to the voice of the messengers that were sent to her. But number three is pretty large because... The children had failed to give the land the sabbatical years of rest. Now listen to me. This is just setting the stage for where we're all going. Give a little reason. In Leviticus 25, God had given the command to the children that every seventh year, you know, every seventh day we have our Sabbath, but every seventh year, it was the sabbatical year. And every seventh year, they were to give the land rest. Now, I can't prove or disprove, but there isn't any record in Scripture where they ever did that. They may have, but there's never any record of it in Scripture that the people followed through with the instruction of having a seventh sabbatical year of rest for the land. So what we can deduce from the 70 years, the three score 10 years, he said, if I may state it just one more time, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, for as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill three score and ten years. In other words, he's saying they, there was a period of time that they did not practice the sabbatical seventh year of rest. And for the number of years that they did that, the number of Sabbaths that they missed, they're going to have to make up by being captive that long. So, with that being the case, if you take, if every seventh year there's supposed to be a sabbatical rest, the only way you can come up with the number 70 for captivity is if you take seven and put it in 490 years. For 490 years, they had not practiced the seventh year sabbatical rest. And God says, I'm tired of that. The land needs to rest. So I'm going to cause you all to be taken captive out of that land that should have been able to rest. And you're going to be captive for 70 years. Because there's 70 years of rest that the land has not gotten. So I'm taking you out of it and put you in captivity. And the land's going to get the rest it should have gotten. And that's the reason why there was ever a 70-year captivity. Because they didn't let God's land rest. All right. That, that's the reason why this is the reason why that this all starts to unfold. And it all, in, in its most base mode is this. They were disobedient to the Lord. I tell you what, I don't know how many times I read occurrences of disobedience and sometimes consequences, and yet still I in my own personal life at times wrestle with disobedience. And I'll close with this. Stand with me. I know I've transgressed, and there'll probably be a lot of transgressions in the next few weeks. But I didn't say I was going to hold you for 45 minutes. I'm going to hold you till I'm done. So, here's the beginning of our study of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar has went into Jehoiakim and went into the temple there. He's stolen some of the vessels. He's taken it back to Babylon in the land of Shinar. And what we'll begin with next week, he doesn't just take vessels as far as 
literal vessels, but he takes vessels as far as people because he wants some of the best that they got. And he, in, that, in that plundering, he took Daniel and those three Hebrew boys with him. And there was something that Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, was saying in all that, taking those vessels from the house of God, basically telling the people, you know, your God is worthless. He's disgraceful. He can't protect your people. See what we're doing? Can't protect your people. I'll bring these and put these in the gods of Babylon. The gods of Babylon rule the world. Let me tell you, the mentality of all that is not any different from today. But listen to this very clearly. And I believe, Brother Mason, this is where we're at today. Listen to me very clearly. He didn't just take vessels, but he took individuals. Which Daniel and those three Hebrew boys, most people that are uh, people that chronicle and are chronologists, if you will, say that these guys were probably somewhere in their teenage years. You know what Nebuchadnezzar in the kingdom was saying by getting those people in those teenage young people? He said, not only is your God worthless and we're the God of the world, he said, but we got your future in our hand too. And it's the same spirit. I know it. I've dealt, we've dealt with it right here. And every church around the nation deals with it. What's happening? The God of this world is trying to snap you, the young people, and say, we don't only got your present, but we got your future. I believe that. I believe that. Hallelujah. Can we bow our heads tonight? I don't, I don't know how rambunctious our altar calls will be. You never know, though. Someone might see salvation. I don't know. But can we pray together tonight that God would just help us? I know that God... Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.